What is up, guys? Welcome to episode 62 of the Triage Method podcast. I'm here with Patrick Farrell, and we've got a special Q&A edition with your questions from Instagram. So, Paddy, how are you this week? As per usual, I am absolutely fantastic, Gary. You actually look so pretty when you do that. <laughs> I am pretty. I forget people can actually see us now, so when I'm trolling you, like they can see me trolling you. So I need to cut that out. Have some discipline. Or but anyway, step. step it up, step up my trolling game. But yeah, uh, I'm here chilling with my baby calf growth fluid, and we're gonna banya. get stuck in my banya, my banya, and we're gonna get stuck into some questions. So like, why hesitate? Let's get right into it. Question one was. Would you, you being me and you, Patty, ever consider opening a gym in the future with triage? Patty, what do you think? Are we ever going to open a gym? Are we just going to be like avatars online forever? No, 100%. Man. Literally, it's already in the works. I plan on opening at least, at least four gyms 25. in Ireland. Four oh, gyms in Ireland. Yeah, okay, well, you're wrong. Um, you just do what I tell you to do. Um, then <laughs> and then maybe two to three gyms in England and then about 50 gyms in America. 50? Yeah, one for each state. Like, Not bad. We'll take it. Yeah, well, yeah. it'd be de- decent enough. No, but yeah, seriously, I'm just throwing absolute fucking random fucking numbers out. Uh, but yeah, that is... On the books, likely it'll probably just be a group training facility because I think that's more applicable to what people want. Like, like although, like basically, we'd have to have a serious amount of cash on hand to open up a commercial gym because I just don't see the return on investment for opening up. Like the, the commercial gyms you see here, like the way I'd want to do it would be an absolute fucking savage gym and like really good equipment, like more like a an American gym, you know, like the, you see the, the commercial gyms where they just have fucking boatloads of equipment. The facility itself is just huge. And realistically in Ireland, like the... To do it in Dublin, man, I'd need to be a millionaire. Um, to do it elsewhere, like, I don't know if the, the population is there. Like, the next big place you could potentially do it would be maybe Cork. You could open up one there. But I don't know if it would be financially viable. Like, it would definitely be easier to buy the facility. But I don't know if you would get enough people in to the facility to make it worthwhile you know you could then go maybe maybe limerick but after that i don't know i don't know about the the commercial facility doing it the way we want to do it anyway but group training facilities or even like a smaller personal training studios yeah 100 percent. i definitely see that as an avenue that we will potentially be going down sooner rather than later Yep, that sounds good to me. And yeah, like, like the commercial gym thing, it's never really attracted me too much because I think it becomes like far less personal and the people that are getting involved in the business are not necessarily like coming for the 
culture, like not all the time. Um, but yeah, I kind of like that idea of like having a business that is based around a sort of like common culture as in like, you know, you like triage because like we all kind of do this stuff, have a somewhat similar perspective on some things in life, obviously not like a total, you know, fixed ideology, but you kind of get what I mean as in like, I think it's easier to do that within a group training structure where you have gyms where there's, there's a group training, there's group training, there's this kind of a specific culture that is built into that as opposed to it just being like a gym where you just go just because it's in the area, not because you've been exposed to triage online or through friends or whatever. So I, I quite like keeping it a little bit more community based in that sense. But yeah, but like, as I said, the only way I see that being viable is basically being like, yeah, we just have the best gym in Europe. Like, you know, it's yeah. like people fly in from across the world, basically. Anyone that comes to Ireland is like, yeah, of course you're going to the triage commercial gym or whatever. Obviously. Like it would, it would have to be like otherworldly in my mind anyway, to be financially viable. However, that could fucking change. Who the fuck knows? Maybe I might see the books yeah. of some commercial gym and be like, hmm, you're making that much? Hmm, that We could definitely do with making that much, you know? So, uh, yeah. Yes is the answer to the question. How that looks remains to be seen. Next question, young skinny guy. Next question. Opinion on chiropractor slash chiropractic care, okay? I'm going to give you the very diplomatic answer and then the answer that you're probably looking for when you ask this question, okay? Like, firstly, you cannot give an opinion on a profession because in a pre the, the title of a profession does not necessarily reflect the practices of the individuals within it. So it would be silly to say chiropractors are dumb because there are very competent evidence-based chiropractors just like there are very competent evidence-based physiotherapists or any other rehab professionals. And there are also those that practice based on non-evidence-based practice based on faith <laughs> to some degree and stories um, and an anecdote as opposed to actual science. So that happens in every profession. And I don't think I can reliably say that chiropractors are worse for that than physios because you definitely see your fair share of, of quackery and physiotherapy as well. Um, but to get to probably what you're actually asking is like, what is my opinion on the chiropractic techniques that are actually used and that's typically things like like high high velocity high velocity manipulations and stuff like that so basically a fancy way of cracking someone's back like that's essentially what chiropractic is is generally known for i know that's not only the case but that's probably why you're asking and in that case like like chiropractic there's a lot of flaws within chiropractic care those who are more old school and still like subscribe to the idea that you are fixing specific subluxations within the spine that leads to um, improvement in disease, not even just pain, but also like diseases. Like that to me is like a false theory that you should definitely try and move yourself away from. Um, but broader to that, like the actual manual therapies that are used are often based on like like false, false stories again. And we've talked about that in the manual therapy podcast. We've also read, written about it on our website. Basically, a lot of the narratives that are provided to justify treatments related to manual therapies, thrust man manipulations, etc., um, are not particular. They're not doing what they say they do. And the effects, yes, they may lead to reductions in pain, but like, to, like we've talked about uh, many times, lots of things can lead to reductions in pain. And, you know, there's even studies on 
the use of like chiropractic manipulations in the thoracic spine versus an unplugged ultrasound leading to no difference in outcomes between the two. So you, there's, there's always going to be placebo effects at play when you're dealing with improvements in pain, especially when it comes to a theatrical intervention. Um, there's, a three, there's a sort of a theatrical component to the intervention because you go to the chiropractor, there's a certain expectation, they fulfill your expectation by telling you what they're going to do and giving you the story related to that. And then there's also the added sensory cues of you feeling something happening in your back and you hearing the actual sound of cracking. And all of that feeds into the response then in terms of like the change in your experience. So in terms of like, are chiropractors bad people? No. Can you have great chiropractors? Yes. Can you have terrible chiropractors? Yes. Um, are the narratives and the stories that go along with a lot of the typical treatments in chiropractic care evidence-based? No, they're not. And they're generally, it's generally not what I would, would recommend people seek out when they are experiencing pain or disability. Now, having said that, if you want someone to crack your back, because it's like, it's almost like just scratching an itch for you and you just know it feels nice and it's not really doing anything that's going to be of lasting benefit, you're willing to spend your money the way you'd like, you know? The only things that I would add to that is, first of all, if you want free uh, chiropractic, just do jujitsu. There you go. (laughs) Secondly, I'm actually scared of chiropractic, chiropractic, whatever the fuck, chiropractors, maybe. (laughs) Um, Purely from just reading all that research, you know, where it's like they give people strokes and stuff. They like make a, a neck manipulation and they fucking... I know, do shit with the the carotid artery or some shit, and they just people yeah, are literally yeah. like an hour or two later, they just have a stroke, and it's because of the the treatment. And also, uh, one of my friend's older brother is uh, a neurosurgeon. I was like, uh, yeah, he's a neurosurgeon, um, and he, he's like, yeah, I hate chiropractic. Well, he's like, I love chiropractic <laughs> because it makes me loads of money because people get fucked up. Uh, from it but he's like i hate it as a profession so that obviously clouds my view of the whole thing but yeah i also don't think the in most cases the human body is fragile enough like to to be severely limited by going to a chiropractor like yes if you get someone to crack your neck the shit can go wrong but literally you can walk out in the street and shit can go wrong um so yeah free chiropractor just do jujitsu you should be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh shit, yeah. Like, obviously, like there are some darker areas to it in that, like, like you're talking about the neck manipulations. Obviously, there can be a risk there, and I think often people try to downplay the risk by using statistics. Like, like for example, if you say that, uh, oh, it only happens in zero point zero 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 one percent of cases of neck manipulation. It's like, yeah, that sounds nice statistically. But if you actually think about the actual risk, as in like, it's not, it's not like a, a risk of pain. It's like a risk of actual death. It's like, like death becomes far more relevant to people, even if it is a very small percentage. So you still have to think about how that risk might relate to people because risk can often sound really simple in statistical terms. But when you put it in real life terms, it's like, oh, actually, I might want to think about this a bit more. And the other thing that's really dark about chiropractic is this whole, like, I'm not sure if you've seen it, like apply the application of chiropractic care to children like kids babies literally babies you see them cracking their backs and like the babies are crying and stuff i'm like man like like what what made you think this was a good idea like this is just not cool but anyway um 
next question is a question I really like because it's actually something that I get a lot in my DMs when I'm talking about research. But the question is, and this is from someone who I know is into research. So do you think there's too much emphasis on research for justification and not enough on anecdotal evidence? Now, this, this person who's asking this is coming from so, is, is someone that is very likely to be following lots of people who are within the evidence-based sphere. Okay. Now that is, that's rare. Okay. Like what, what you have to realize is that if you're in a circle where you think that people are over-reliant on evidence for, for reasoning, then you're very likely to be stuck in a filter bubble online or a very specific niche where people happen to be talking about evidence in the vast, like the, the majority of the fitness industry, majority of, of the discussions about health online are not focusing on evidence, like venture beyond the people that you actually follow and look at hashtags, like put in hashtag fitness and see what people are talking about on Instagram. You'll find that it's, you've actually just been stuck in this little silo as opposed to seeing what everyone else is doing. Um, so yeah, I don't, I absolutely do not think there's too much of an emphasis on research at all. And very often what happens here is that people will say, oh, but practice, clinical practice is so far ahead of the research. However, like ironically, there's actually research on how long it takes clinical practice to catch up to the research. And the, the figure given is 17 years, but like that's in medicine. It doesn't mean it applies in every field. But what you'll generally see is that practice can be, can absolutely be very behind what we know um, from, from the research. Um, and I'm sure you're very aware of that, Patty, from the, like your own like field of biochemistry and like biomedical sciences and stuff. It's probably very relevant in that field in particular. Yeah. And when people say this, about like the, the fitness industry, like they're, they're not actually wrong because in certain yeah. cases like you are going to have individuals that are ahead of the research. Like they're coming up with new methodologies or again, more likely they came up with new methodologies. They always use like Poliquin as an example. Like it was like, oh, he was talking about this in 1970 and it's only came to be proven in 1990, whatever. It's like, yeah, like you can use that as your whole justification. But you have to remember that there was thousands, if not maybe even millions of trainers that were also around at that time that were completely relying on anecdotal evidence and were 20, 30 years behind. So just because there's one individual that was potentially ahead of the, the research in a certain aspect, I'm not endorsing anything, whatever, um, that doesn't mean that the, the field as a whole is ahead of the research because realistically in most cases like you're saying it's way way behind the research so i definitely don't think there's too much emphasis on research for justification and not enough on anecdotal evidence also i'm going to presume i don't know who asked this question but i'm going to presume they are talking about this health and fitness industry as a whole mm -hmm. and the unfortunate thing about this whole health and fitness industry is everyone is a pathological liar Okay, so they will say, no, literally, like they'll say, like, oh, I'm doing this and X, Y, Z, and this is this new training method. But they'll just leave out the fact that they're on fucking five grams of trend a week, <laughs> you know. So it's like, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, like, okay, yeah, you might be saying you have discovered this new fucking methodology or whatever else, but you're ignoring the fact that you know the, the drugs you're on is the, the contributing factor, you know? Um, so I definitely don't think that. I also, the 
most people will say they're evidence-based and quite in fact they're they're not evidence-based <clears throat> what they what they're saying when they say they're evidence-based is they follow people who write about the primary literature right like they themselves in most cases are not actually reading the primary literature right and even then you could be like like i actually don't think that's a huge issue because i'm like well like not everyone has the ability the time the fucking whatever to read the primary literature so they're obviously going to need someone to interpret that but also as i said most people in the fitness industry are pathological liars so they intentionally misrepresent the primary literature or not even misrepresent just talk about literature that supports their viewpoint and like they, they might even read research that's like oh yeah this is completely blows my point out of the water but they won't update their points like you will see online quite often people do update like the the evidence-based people will update their their methodologies or whatever you want to call them and they're like yeah new research came out or research that i thought supported my point has been shown to not support my point so my point has now changed you know and it's like yeah cool that's perfect i actually love to see that but what most people will do in the fitness industry is like no i'm going to stick with my point because i've actually built my entire following off this point you know and it's like that like yeah that that's cool and everything but it's like you you're now telling everyone that you're evidence-based when the evidence does not support your point and or your points and thus you're not evidence-based so yeah i think uh there's not enough emphasis on research for justification and there is too much emphasis on anecdotal evidence however yeah that still needs to be cautioned with you know sometimes the anecdotal stuff is right and ideally that would be what is helping to inform better research i suppose yeah, and I, like I think I think the the key point really is like like I'm not I'm not trying to like diss anecdote or experience. Like I think it's actually really valuable, and you'll actually find a lot of of, of problems with the way in which people use science in some cases. Um, but I suppose like like what we're saying is that like we would assume that we're talking about using evidence the way it should be used, as opposed to using it to support a specific narrative. And like what I found like over time through my experience of reading the research and stuff is like what you end up doing when you read the research over time is you actually end up being uncertain like you end up with a degree of uncertainty at the end point of of knowing all of the literature in a specific area and then what you end up doing is you can then apply the experience the kind of experience and the more artistic aspect of coaching let's say um because like you're not like we're not going to get to a point where we have evidence to to just put together a training program for you it's not what it's there to do you know i don't think that's the purpose of research evidence like research evidence in a, in in an applied training setting let's say is there to give us some insight into what principles may or may not be important so like the principles of like things like volume and frequency and intensity and and even like the the way in which specific exercises might work like all we let's say if it's a, an exercise that has a very lot large eccentric component that that might have some different effects to a different type of exercise like that's all useful but then you 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 layer on top the the art of coaching and even like reasoning based on 
basic physiology in some cases based on mechanics based on anatomy like you're still allowed to use these things but i wouldn't call that anecdote i'd call that the use of like some additional rationale that is has been well thought out that there's you have some theory for as opposed to just it worked for me now having said that if there's something that's very stable over time that has consistently worked like like whether it's like economics or whether it's something social, whether it's training, whether it's nutrition, if something is consistently working over time in multiple different populations, in multiple different contexts, then I would look at that and be like, all right, that that's interesting anecdotal evidence. Like that to me is interesting experience. Or, or if, if, if let's say all of the major coaches that have coached uh, Olympic weightlifting athletes are all saying very similar things about a specific training practice. Then I'd be like, all right, that's interesting. We actually need to pay attention to that because that's, that's a signal among the noise. However, like you want, you, you need to be able to find a way to find those signals among the noise because otherwise you just focus on the noise and there's countless anecdotal evidence. Like some people will say, oh yeah, high intensity training works works better other people say high volume training works better some people say oh training seven days a week works better oh no just train one muscle group one day per week and it's like like that's just all noise but there are some signals that get elevated and then there are the types of things that you will see play out in research so you can absolutely use both um, and I think there there's there can definitely be cases where people put it push the evidence too far and just like they might be able to make a decision because they don't have a specific paper to justify like whether you do six reps or eight reps. But in my experience, like, like it doesn't happen often. Like it, like realistically, no one is reading 20 papers a day on PubMed. <laughs> like it's just not a thing. Yeah, that's fair. Next question, Gary, what is it? Next question is favorite alcohol beverage, alcoholic beverage currently. <laughs> Penny, what's yours? <laughs> water how do you how used to drink cider how do you used to drink cider Ugh, how weak is that actually i actually used to drink vodka straight but cider was a nice little like you know beverage with the boys but juice it's, not, it's like juice <laughs> exactly like i don't understand like beer first of all it tastes like piss people are like oh no. it's an acquired, acquired taste right i'm sorry that you have acquired the taste of piss like that's not my fault i'm not going to engage in that myself right so <laughs> 100% you can go drink your piss water if you want right I will sit over here if I was to drink and drink something that tastes like the gods have squished apples and made it into a beverage like oh. that's fine <laughs> I will drink my apple juice <laughs> um, I generally like um, IPAs I like kind of like stronger beers in general darker beers I like them had a lovely O'Hara's double Irish stout last night with a little bit of dark chocolatey vanilla taste and that was delicious um but yeah no I just kind of like darker beers like IPAs I don't have anything in specific specific because I'm not a big drinker <laughs> I don't have like this connoisseur level uh taste but yeah that would be they'd be my general preferences I also like a good Peroni can't beat that but uh there you go that's our alcohol triage method endorsed alcoholic beverages <laughs> Zero alcohol. <laughs> Zero. It used to be a degenerate. I got off that life, man. Much better for you. <laughs> there you go. Um, next question is, ever gone into the concept of refeed days? Paddy, you ever heard of the concept of refeed days, bro? Never heard of it. I, I, there's actually loads of articles <laughs> on our site about it, but never heard of it. <laughs> 
yes, we have probably heard of Reefy Days. Um, like I suppose, like historically, Reefy Days were initiate were used by bodybuilders who were losing body fat and they would use these refeed or cheat days in an attempt to quote unquote boost their metabolism okay that's typically how they were used um i guess our our general perspective you can update it if you'd like our general perspective on the, the use of refeed days would be that they're probably not necessary for most people and they're not likely to have unique like metabolism boosting effects and may potentially compromise fat loss if they push you out of your calorie deficit for the week. Um, the main benefit I would see of using refeed days where you typically you're, you're increasing your calories and your carbohydrates in particular up to around maintenance. The main benefit I would see is probably a psychological benefit where someone is able to get out of their normal dieting practices and have a day where they're eating a little bit more food they're not quite as hungry they're able to fuel training a little bit better um and that would be where i would see some use there but for most of our clients like i don't know about you patty but like most of our clients are general population i don't ever you really need to use like refeed days however like sometimes we'll have like diet breaks i prefer multi-day or like week-long diet breaks if someone is dieting for a long period of time especially if they're getting quite lean. And I think they tend to have better effects both like psychologically and physiologically if you want to like reduce like some of the adaptations to dieting or drop-offs in performance. And um, I think a week-long approach is, is generally better. Would you agree? 100%. I, I think the research would show, like we're saying, you know, you want to use research and anecdote, you know, research would suggest that at least, like very least three days, you're going to need to see any kind of hormonal changes in in a meaningful manner, you know? So I like three to seven days if you are going to do a refeed, but my general thought process is I'd rather just see someone diet on higher calories every day. Like if you're going to have a refeed day that, you know, especially if you're doing a, a cheat day, which is what most people consider a refeed day where they're like, Oh yeah, just refeeding. And they literally eat about 3000 extra calories. And it's like, okay, well, you now have to diet on 1800 calories, which just makes you go, yeah, I need that cheat day because it's psychologically, I'm like, or it's psychological. I'm like, I'd rather just see you actually dieting on an appropriate level of calories throughout the whole week and moving towards your goal without actually feeling overly restricted, you know? So yeah, I think the research would suggest if you're going to do a refeed, realistically, at least three days of maintenance or above, or what I like more is, like you said, Gary, that kind of just full diet break where it's like, yeah, we're back to maintenance, maybe even just a little bit above maintenance. The only time I see refeeds being appropriate is if someone has uh, perhaps an event that they want to go to, they just want to eat more that day. You know, it's like, it's not, I'm not, I'm not justifying this with any like, oh, this is for fucking leptin resetting or anything. It's like, no, we're just going to eat more this day. That's fine. Just stay within your maintenance. No big deal. Or if some somebody has maybe a game or sport or whatever the next day, we might go, okay, we have been dieting. We're going to bring us back to maintenance or slightly above maintenance the day before, the day of the game, you know, just so performance is that slight bit better. You know, but again, I'm not using that as a, uh, a, I'm not justifying that by going like, oh, it's mental, it's psychological, or it's some physiological stuff happening. I'm like, I just, I personally just 
don't see that stuff happening. I haven't seen it in the like anecdotal stuff or I haven't seen it in the literature. However, what you will see is people going, yeah, refeeds really work for me. Like I always wake up the next day, I'm leaner, I, I've, my performance is great. And it's like, yeah, like all you did was eat extra carbs. Like, so of course, you've just topped up your glycogen. So you feel leaner because, you know, your muscle is fuller with glycogen. And maybe you did pull some like, you know, you, you've done some water balance shifting and you pulled some uh, water from under the fat and you've pulled it into the muscle because glycogen or carbs generally bring in muscle or bring in water into the muscle. So maybe you have done a bit of that. So you do feel that little bit more muscularly fuller and you have a little bit less water and you're like, oh, like this, it just works for me a hundred percent. But it would also just work for you if you just ate those carbs throughout the week, you know, <laughs> like you would be fuller. You wouldn't have been as glycogen depleted, you know? So it's like, yeah, they're the exact same approach. All you're doing is strategically placing it on one day where you could have done the exact same thing except across the entire week. You know, you will see people as well go, look, I had this refeed day and, and my weight dropped. And again, it's more, more often than not just like water weight trickery. You know, it's like, yeah, did you notice that? Yeah, your your niche went up. You know, you just see it was like, oh, cool. Like a, I started moving around a little bit more. Like again, it's not, hugely meaningful but maybe if you're in the depths of a diet and you're like you're not tracking your niche and you have a, a refeed day and all of a sudden you're like boom okay i'm moving around more i feel great and you know maybe you're you're urinating more because again this water balance trickery is going on and then you wake up the next day you're like oh unreal but in everyone i see who actually tracks their niche in some some sort of way it could be steps um and people who do refeeds. I ju if, if you track your niche and do refeeds, I just don't see these huge drops or these huge changes in activity. Whereas I do see that in people who don't track their niche, like you like, they'll have their phone on them and then you go, okay, cool. You're doing refeeds. And you'd be like, okay, let, let me see your activity level. And they're like, I did a refeed on this day. And you'll just see their niche, their steps just go way up. And it's like, yeah, no, no wonder you're not tracking your steps at all. And then you do a refeed, all of a sudden your, your niche goes up and yeah, of course the next day you lost weight. Like it's not, it's not hard to understand why. Yes, sir. Um, that covers that. I think, uh, the next question was, can placebo play a big factor for supplements or medicine with little evidence? For example, CBD. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, th this is something that I think we touched on in detail on the podcast titled Magic Words. I think we touched on it in that uh, a good bit. But yeah, basically, the, the very simple answer is yes. Like most of the evidence on placebo-related effects has originated from that like biomedical research. You know, that's like that placebo term is generally associated with a, a placebo pill. So a pill that has nothing but sometimes sugar or just an inert uh, pill there's nothing really in it so like that's that's where the word placebo initially kind of came from and i think the, the placebo effects themselves like can be delineated in, into like a, a placebo placebo effects specifically or placebo placebo responses and all that stuff is like definitely worth looking into if you're really interested in this topic but does it play a, an effect absolutely and and the effect that it might have would depend on multiple different factors like even the the actual ritual of taking a pill is part of the 
placebo effects that you that, that you might experience so there any any improvement in symptoms like for example one of the, the things that you see in like morphine administration is that like if it's concealed that the that morphine is being stopped so they're no longer administering it and i see and the doctor says to the patient oh we're going to stop administering this morphine now then you'll see increases in in pain again so that that pain relieving effect is essentially gone and then on the other side of things if the, if it's not if they don't tell them that they're that they're going to to stop it essentially you continue to have those pain relieving effects and that can go in multiple different directions like for example if you tell people there's going to be a harmful effect there's more likely to be a harmful effect uh, that that would be then related to like pharmacy for example if you want to make people aware of the side effects of a drug they're then more likely to experience side effects of a drug but obviously there are medical legal issues there so you can't just say like oh don't tell people there's going to be side effects um but yeah so it's definitely relevant especially with things like cbd because what you see with cbd a lot of the time is that like i think we mentioned this in the last podcast but uh, or two podcasts ago but uh like what you'll see with cbd a lot of the time is pe- people get their narratives relate from about cbd from the internet from forums from people who are trying to sell them cbd and they'll say oh it really improves sleep and then you actually look into the research and it's like this actually doesn't really help sleep at all like from what we can see and um, of course there may be individuals but in general it doesn't seem to to do much but if you've set the expectation for someone and there's the ritual of taking the cbd before bed then all of that can potentiate placebo effects so so yeah definitely really relevant and you can add something there patty i just want to show people a book <laughs> i wish you nothing to add yeah 100 this book if you're interested in this topic uh, for those watching the video you'll see it it's called placebo effects by fabrizio benedetti if you do any research or, or if you read any research on like pubmed or wherever about placebo effects you're going to come across his name that's his book and it's it's absolutely fantastic. It goes into all all different like areas of research, like related to medicine, related to like pain, um, surgery, even lots of different areas. So that's that's definitely worth a look if, if that's of interest to you. If you happen to care, man, it's too easy. Literally too easy. Anyway, next question. Garroich. <laughs> next question. Uh, <laughs> Ten-year goal for triage, take over the world. I, I want it to be disbanded. <laughs> just, just general world. I want us to have like a space force, like you know. <laughs> no, uh, ten-year goals. I want like a, a, a You're not. You look. You you don't get to tell us where the business goes. You literally do nothing all day and go. Oh, I'm so busy. Always late to our meetings. Everything. It's disgusting. Um, literally run, run this podcast literally one of your clients asked you how to upload the, the podcast and you were like uh, uh, ask Paddy uh, I just I don't know so weak no that's not true he, he, he wanted to subscribe his podcast to Spotify and that's what he asked help for help with so weak Gary you just don't even know what's going on anyway 10 year goals Gary, what do you think our 10-year goals are? Well, my goals, my goals, not your goals, my goals are related more so to a longer-term like philosophy rather than a specific thing. Like To be honest, I don't care if in 10 years we have like a, a, a supplement and clothing company as part of our business or not. Like If they are part of our business, I don't particularly care as long as our overall 
as long as our overall business is following the mission statement of essentially empowering people to live the best lives they can through science-based health and fitness information like that's what we want to do is empower individuals so like ideally in terms of like actual concrete stuff in 10 years time definitely like to have like at least one gym where we have people working on the ground spreading the triage culture and online we will have a ridiculous library of information available all for free for people which will be fantastic um, we'll have multiple different ebooks written we will like paddy paddy really wants a supplement business so we'll definitely have a supplement business <laughs> and we'll have lots of too easy t-shirts and stuff like that and we'll definitely be be making our way internationally by that point i think in 10 years yeah 100 percent um, of course yeah like i just think i'm like like i hate all this stuff where people tell you as a business you need to have a five-year plan you need to have a 10-year plan you need to have this i'm like yeah like obviously you need direction like, like if yeah. you're not you're not aiming at something you're you're aiming at nothing you know um so obviously you need direction but i'm in the same boat as you i'm like it's it's more so an ideology or first principles if you will rather than the, the method we go about it i'm like i just want people to realize that they're fucking savages that's pretty much like that is the summary ultimately like so we want. Like I love, I love confidence. Like I love when you know you just walk into a shop or something, and the the cashier or whatever is just really confident at their job, and I, that's all I want. I just want people that are just really, really confident at whatever the fuck they choose to do, because they're not limited by their health or fitness. I'm like, that's that's all I want. I want you to be 100% healthy, 100% fit, so that life is literally too easy for you and you are just a fucking savage at whatever the fuck you choose to do yeah and and that's pretty much it like just just because like we just we discussed this last week but i mean just because you're like we happen to be involved in like the health and fitness stuff that's only the avenue through which we kind of basically approach our specific mission statement which is as you said like empowering individuals to be savage competent members of society like that is the ultimate goal because i think I think that is like, as, you, as you'll have heard us talk about in, in the solo episode I did about health, like that's actually, all these things are intertwined. Like you actually want to be someone that is competent, that is like financially stable, you know, that is, has, sees meaning and purpose in their work, that, you know, has, is a good family and community member. Like all that stuff is actually really important. It sounds really soft. But it's, you know, the basics of being a human. And I think I think we, we often just don't talk about that. As in like you go through you go your whole your whole way through school and you learn all these like loose topics, but no one ever says to you, well, like it depends on your teachers, obviously, but it's never really ingrained in people that like, you know, you can actually be a competent individual. Like this is what you should take pride in. Um those sorts of things are what I think are really important. So there you go. Yeah, like I just want to get to Valhalla. So Odin only chooses the best. So like, you have to you have to be the best. You know, the best man, woman, child that you can be. You know. There you go. But yeah, respect, competence. There you go. Um, <clears throat> are you a guard puller? We actually talked about this before the podcast because I wasn't actually aware that this was like a you know, like a little bit of a jujitsu meme because I'm quite new. But apparently a guard puller is someone that just pulls you into their guard and then they just sit there and doesn't actually try to do anything. So am I that? I don't know. 
maybe like maybe sometimes Jeez, I didn't know it was a bad thing so now maybe I'll be conscious of not doing it but when you're yeah, unskilled you're, like <laughs> you're definitely a guard putter yeah but generally it is someone who just just pulls guard like as in like yeah, yeah. just pulls guard right and it is what you do when you're scared it's like okay well I don't know anything well I know I can hold you here so I'll do that so you probably are because you're always scared nah. as well Nah, I try not to. I actually don't do that. I always end up in like some awkward position where I think I'm in a good position and I'm like, actually, shit, I have this guy's arm and then I'm losing it. I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. But there you go. Anyway, don't know if I'm a guard puller. We'll see. Um, what are your thoughts, Paddy, on the anti-diet movement? This what is, is the anti-diet movement? Yeah, see, this is the thing. We actually need to define terms here because there can actually be a lot of good that can come from this and potentially a lot of bad that can come from this. So, like, the, the anti-diet movement as a, as a broader thing is part of what I, would, what I would refer to as, you know, the health at every size movement. So the, the, the idea of being anti-diet is the idea that we want to, you can promote healthful behaviors without telling someone that they need to diet or lose weight. And this certainly has positive applications because if let's say someone has a history of eating disorders, you might want them to adopt more intuitive, um, mindful eating practices um, in order to improve their kind of relationship with food and their ability to learn to eat again. Or it might be the case that someone has a health condition that is totally unrelated to weight and you don't necessarily want to just go in and be like, oh, you need to lose weight. Um, it also could even be relevant for someone like who has, let's say, some sort of cardiometabolic disease that is related to weight. But, but, but it could be the case that by focusing only on weight, then you're not actually you know, encouraging the person to adopt the healthful, healthful practices of eating more fiber, of improving diet quality, of improving their exercise habits, of improving their sleep, etc. So I think that's the, that's the really positive aspect of being quote unquote anti-diet. Although I would just include, I would just kind of look at it as being like, you can, you can improve health with, with weight neutral behaviors without focusing solely on weight. Now, I think that's a good message. However, there's another side of it where people are just totally like cold turkey against all things related to dieting. And the, even the suggestion of weight loss or the promotion of you know, satisfaction with the fact that someone lost weight is basically you get shouted at for doing it. And this is quite pervasive on social media where, you know, uh, especially especially with women, unfortunately, you know, a, a woman will post a picture and she'll be really happy that she lost weight. And like, as we've discussed, like we're, we like people bettering themselves. And if someone does that, like a, you know, woman or man or whatever, I would you know, commend them for that. And I'd be like, that's, that's fantastic. You know, fair play to you for, for doing that. However, what's happening now as part of this kind of no diet movement is that what some, what some people will do is they'll come along and actually give out to that person and tell them that they're promoting diet culture and promoting eating disorders and promoting the value in somebody's over others. And I think that's where the problems really come into this because it sort of, you know, it, it criticizes people for trying to better themselves and for actually being successful at doing something, which is almost like, you know, trying to just create this, this level line of mediocrity where you just accept everything and you don't even try to improve yourself. And I think that, that there's definitely toxic elements to that. To be quite honest, I actually don't have a huge opinion because I don't really go on social media and I just, 
don't see this stuff, right? However, like you suggested, there there is obviously pros and cons to this because I do think for a lot of people, this over-focus on scales, weight, like it doesn't help a lot of people. Like it, it actually just discourages a lot of people from actually seeking medical help for issues they may have. And then the, the issues become compounded to an, an actual bigger issue, you know? And it even discourages people from doing stuff which may be actually a direct call or direct causality, I suppose, um, from their struggle with their weight, right? And, and what I mean by that is, like, you might have subclinical diabetes, right? Like, you're, you're, you're on that kind of borderline between, like, you know, maybe some days you actually do, you're in that diabetic range, but some days you're not, right? And you're just fearful of actually going to the doctor because you know they're just going to be like, yeah, just lose weight and just that's, they'll just fob you off like that. So there are obviously, there is obviously a reason, excuse me, there is obviously a reason to have this movement, have this broader talking point, this nuance added to the information you get around nutrition and whatever else. However, it can become toxic like you're saying where people then go the complete opposite way right they're like oh like it's 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 almost anti-skinny if that makes sense like or yeah. anti-fit you know rather than being anti-diet well like they'll literally like you're saying give out about someone like they're literally all they'll talk about is body positivity you should love your body and then someone will say i lost 10 pounds and now I love my body and they'll give out to that person. You know, it's like, like you're, you're distorting the message because of your relationship with the scales or your relationship with the, the, the mirror or whatever metric it is. That's, that's messing you up. And you will then go, Oh no, look, you shouldn't be doing something that makes you love yourself more, but you should love your body at the same time. It's like this, this is kind of dichotomous. Like these two thoughts are not coherent together. Like you can't say you should love your body and then say to someone who now says they love their body that they did something wrong. You know, like, again, you will see this as well. Like, uh, like it's not, it's not just women. I know you just, you said it is loads of women, but it's, it's not just women. Um, but you'll see someone say something like they'll be relative, they'll be relatively lean. They're in this fucking, health and fitness industry or whatever and they'll be relatively lean and then they'll say like oh i feel fat i feel bloated you know maybe they're on their period or the week before their period or whatever you know and like i feel fat or i feel bloated and people will literally in the comments tell them to shut the fuck up that they're not fat that you know you you're you're putting out a bad uh image to the, the fitness, you're, you're basically influencing younger people to feel bad about themselves. And it's like, these people are just expressing how they feel. Like the, the entire narrative is about your feelings towards your body, improving the feelings towards your body. And this person is expressing that they feel bloated, feel fat or whatever. And it's like, you, you're now degrading them for that. And it's like, that's, in my mind, I'm like, that's, that's not empowering. That's not helpful for either case. Now, obviously, like any ideology, it is unfortunately 
the loudest people that tarnish the entire ideology, you know? And this goes to politics, this goes to religion, this goes to whatever the fuck. It's always the, the, the vocal minority that then destroy the, the silent majority, you know? And it's like, the, the, on social media, presumably, um, you, you just get this kind of, not even an echo chamber. Like, I just don't think, I just don't see, do people go on about social media being an echo chamber? And I just don't see that. I'm like, you realize that, okay, the echo chamber, all that happens was it, it got a little bit bigger because people still were always talking about this stuff in person, in their community, in their societal groups. And it's like, all you've done is made the echo chamber bigger. So it's like, I, I just don't see how people are like, this, this, social media is ruining everyone. I'm like, people are just dickheads full stop. So they'll do it wherever. They'll do it on a social media platform or they'll do it at home. It doesn't fucking matter. Um, so there's that. And I, I just don't see, unfortunately, it playing out a good way for a lot of people because on both sides of it, like it is a clearly a needed movement, but it's also a, an easily easily disrupted movement or easily deferred movement. I don't even know the word, you know, and, and easily a movement that you can easily make corrupt. Corrupt is probably the best word, you know, where you can bring about a message that is actually empowering people, or you can bring about a message that is basically just saying like, Oh yeah, love your body and don't ever try to, better yourself like even if you're like oh yeah i actually have pre-diabetes and you know cleaning up my diet or whatever losing a little bit of weight would actually improve things it's like no 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 don't do any of that that's bad and it's like you you're giving one, one is a toxic message and one is an empowering message and it's like i just in when i see people talking i'm like you you're talking about loving yourself. You're talking about empowerment. And then you're going down the, the corrupt route, you know? And it's like, this is just from someone on the outside looking in. Um, but yeah, also, I would like to add the nuance or add the nuance, yeah, I suppose, on top of that, of saying that people who love their body don't tell other people they love their body, right? So for me, I'm like, like, I just don't think of that. Like, it never enters my head. Like, my body is literally just the thing that allows me to do the other things that I want to do. It allows me to move around. Like, you could call it a vehicle, but it, I don't even think that. Like, it's, it's, just, it's just me. It's just the thing that allows me to do what I want to do. Like, move, move around, you know? And it's like, I, like, I don't... It doesn't define me as a person. It doesn't... I don't like I'm, I'm indifferent to it. Like, yes, I love my body because it allows me to do everything that I want to do, but I'm not like, if I gain five kilos, I, I honestly just don't care. Like it's irrelevant to my overall life. Like I could get 17 inch arms. I just don't see it improving my life in any meaningful way. So like when someone says I love my body and they consistently say they love their, my body or they love their body, I'm like, and people who love their body don't think this. So in my mind, again, like, I don't know, I, like I'm not, I'm not engaging with these people. So I don't know the thought process, but in my mind, I'm like, I just don't see people who actually love their body talking about this. So 
there's that. Yeah. So yeah, like, you know, the message can be very helpful or it can be very radical. And I think a helpful, like it is definitely helpful to adopt the thought process that, you know, you are, you are more than just like how your body looks like. And, and the fact that like you should hopefully be competent in something else other than how you look like, that's not a, it's not a, a thing that you should be thinking about all the time. And that like, you should view yourself as being, you know, as your body essentially being relatively uninteresting versus the rest of yourself and your abilities and the things that you can offer to the world. So like that to me is the empowering way of looking at this. Um, and I, I think very often it's just, again, like that false dichotomy that you have to be either the person that says, fat people are bad, you have to be ripped. Like no one actually says that, but the people on the other side of the spectrum make it look like those people are saying that. And, you know, likewise, you could be that kind of non-diet professional to some degree and then have those perspectives without being the total radical. Like there are some, some, I say some, like lots of people who are part of this movement that will say things like, you know, dieting, the simple act of trying to lose weight is created by white males who run capitalism to try and oppress women. Like that's where that stuff just becomes ridiculously radical because it's like, how, how did you actually conclude this? Um, and then ironically, you know, that movement then, you know, sells their own non-diet health professional books as part of capitalism. And it's like, oh, well, this is convenient, isn't it? <laughs> convenient way of gathering a following on a, you know, private platform or public platform, whatever. Um, there you go. But, but yeah, there, there's, a, there's a spectrum. Don't dichotomize it. Take what you need from that movement. And I don't know, don't become a radical, I guess. I think That's the best way to think of it is I think the best way to think of it is a diet doesn't mean you're losing weight. A diet is simply the food that you eat. Like it, it shouldn't mean weight loss, shouldn't mean weight gain. They are merely outcomes based on the diet that you eat. Like animals eat diets. Like the, everyone eats a diet, you know? So Everyone's on a diet. So if you're anti-diet, you're anti-food. You're anti-eating. Anti-eating. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but yeah, like most things we discuss at triage, you know, there's a spectrum there and you can very much have a centrist view that is, you know, very rational, very reasonable and that appreciates um, what people might be saying on, on both sides. So there you go. The next question was, you guys seem to train in a, a generalist way. Why is that? Um, I assume generalist in this case relates to like, you know, having your hand in multiple different pies, not being powerlifters, not being purely yoggers, whatever. Teddy, what's the story of the generalist approach? Why would you, why would you train like that? Well, I just want to be relatively okay at everything. Like my, my training philosophy personally is I want to always be able to save myself like whatever situation i come into i don't want to feel like basically i don't want my ghost to come back and say that my training let me down <laughs> that's i just don't want as i said i want to get to valhalla like i don't i don't want to die in battle to get there like i want to be killed like a warrior and but the only way you can do that is if you are adequately trained, you are able, like fatigue makes bitches of us all, right? So I just don't want to be fatigued. So that means I have to be cardiovascularly fit. I also don't want a fucking log to fall on me and 
I just can't get it off my chest because I'm not strong enough, you know? So I'm like, I just think you should be fit, whatever that means for the stuff that you plan on engaging in, and you should be strong enough so that you have an excess of strength, like you have strength in reserve to do whatever the fuck needs to be done in your daily life, right? Because I think every, every individual who is able should at least be able to save themselves. So if there's a burning building, you are at least able to save yourself. If your fucking car crashes off into a pier or into a body of water or whatever the fuck, you should be able to swim to safety. If something happens, you should be able to run to safety, you know? So that's my philosophy. And then I also believe, obviously, those that are able, the next step then is to be able to save others. And that's, that's kind of more towards what I train towards. Like, I want to be able to, like, I just couldn't have that on my conscience, whatever. If I could have done something, but I was too weak, too scared, too fucking unfit or whatever to save someone I loved or even just another individual. You know, so that's why I train like a generalist. I like, I don't see any other way of training, giving you that ability. Like if I just became a pure marathon runner, like, yes, I probably would be fitter, but I don't know if I would be stronger, you know, like, I don't know if that would make me any better able to do what I want to be able to do, you know, like everything else I see has pitfalls to it and that's not to say like my training has pitfalls doesn't or sorry my training doesn't have pitfalls to it like and again sometimes I won't be at my maximum capacity for strength for fitness for muscle mass whatever the fuck whatever metric but I still have that generalist base basically what CrossFit tries to do is what I want to do with my training. I just don't think that high rep snatches are a way to do it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, I think like the, that's why the, the CrossFit type of, of training is actually appealing to a lot of people because it does give them kind of that generalist fitness base, but sometimes the practices within that aren't necessarily, you know, optimal. And I, I kind of like the idea of leading my own training as well. Like I like training on my own and I kind of like having the freedom of, you know, deciding what I, like if I want to change my program on a given day, that's fine. And I don't think like the CrossFit environment would be like my favorite training environment. But, but yeah, like the, the generalist way of training is obviously good for all of the things that you listed, but also like if you even think of like what's contributing to long-term health, to health and longevity and to, you know, not being diseased, if you will, like training in a generalist way is a good approach. And I think, I think people forget that. I think sometimes people think that just because they train with really heavy weights that they're, you know, they're free of the responsibility of doing cardiovascular work. And it's like, no, you actually still have to do this for health. And similarly, similarly on the other side of the spectrum, like you can have a very high VO2 max, but if you don't have great muscle strength, then that might be a hole in your, you know, health and longevity equation. So again, you might, you'd be giving yourself a better chance by doing that. So there's the functional aspect in terms of like what you talked about, of, you know, traversing the world, saving yourself, helping others, being, being useful in multiple different situations. 
that's all useful. Then there's the, the health aspect of it. And then there's also like, which is important, a degree of like it just being enjoyable and promoting adherence. Like if you enjoy your training and it, if, if you enjoy your training, you enjoy what you do overall, then you're far more likely to adhere to that in the long run. And for me at this point in time, like I don't think I could train purely like a powerlifter and look forward to training every day. Like I like the idea of, you know, having jujitsu some days, having my more strength focused session some days, uh, doing, you know, some, some jogging some days, doing some conditioning work in the gym some days. I quite like the, the variety that's there with the knowledge that it's all contributing to an improvement in health and function over the long term. So there you go. That's the, the generalist approach. Next question, Gary. Next question, very simple one, is what does it mean to adopt the too easy mindset? It means it's too easy. It is quite simple though, in fairness, like as in, like it's, like, the, the, the reason I, I actually love saying too easy all the time is because it actually encompasses a lot of more complex things that you could flesh out. Like, you know, you could say that uh, it's really important to have a sense of self-confidence and self-efficacy because that improves your ability to do different tasks day to day and throw yourself into uncomfortable situations, blah, 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 getting out of your comfort zone. You know, that's a really fancy way of saying it. A really simple way of saying it is come at everything with the too easy mindset that, you know, if I have an exam coming up that from the get go, I'm going to be saying, oh yeah, it's going to be too easy. And then what you do is you use that as a means of like, you know, promoting the actions that result in that too easy outcome because like well personally anyway and, and i know you're obviously the same like you don't just be dumb and just say oh yeah it's too easy and then just not prepare for something <laughs> like it's supposed to be a starting point you say oh, oh yeah that's going to be too easy and then you you take you take care of of it being too easy by doing the necessary actions and then you you essentially have that confidence you have that sense of self-efficacy you do what's required and then you have a positive outcome. So that applies to exams. It applies to things in your career. Like if you if you have an interview, like if you've got an interview coming up, you don't start off with the mindset that, oh, I hate interviews. It's going to be terrifying. You say, no, it's going to be too easy. And then again, you come at it with that sense of, you know, you're calm. You've got that sense of self-efficacy. You're going to do the things that are required for you to prepare for the interview. And yeah, it's, it's basically like, why would you not want to approach every area of your life with that mindset? As long as you can, you know, follow through with the actions that are required. As I said, I just want to make everyone an absolute savage and absolute savages think everything is too easy. So exactly. Like I think there's nothing more, there's nothing more toxic than adopting a victim, a victim mentality. Like I think that is actually toxic to exactly. It's actually called the, the too hard mentality. The too hard mentality. Like that is, that is literally toxic to every area of your life. And like, that's actually an evidence-based like, claim as in like, whether it be related to pain, whether it be related to exercise or actual career achievements, like you do not want to be the person that turns around and says, oh, this happened to me because of Paddy or because of like where I grew up or because of like whatever, like my gender. It's because I'm a man that I can't do this thing. It's like, like that's just not a helpful way of, of approaching your life. I don't see why anyone would find being a victim or saying that things are too hard, attractive. Like that is never attractive because even if, if you say something is too easy and you give it your best shot, if you didn't, if you don't follow through, like you don't squat 200 kilos, but you squat 
195, you're still squatting 195. As in, like, you've made progress. Like, if you if you say it's going to be too easy to get an A1 and you put together all the behaviors that are required, like, who cares if you get an A2? Like, you still got an A2. You know, that, that's different than being, like, the victim that says, oh, I'm not going to get good grades because my, I don't know, my parents didn't bring me up like that. Like, that's just not how you want to live your life. Well, thank you. Uh, not at all. All right, next question. How can I help my parents or grandparents take up resistance training? Um, with a caveat that, they want to but have concerns about safety. Paddy, what do you think? Just show them how. Just show them <laughs> how, tell them that it's safe, and make sure they're doing it in a safe manner. I actually don't think this is a hard question. It's like literally, no. if they're going to go to the gym with you, like literally be like, okay, cool. Maybe you start to make it on machines. It's all resistance at the end of the day. And like literally very safe very safe environment very easy to control every little variable and then just progressing them keep an eye on them and go yeah cool right you have done this you're able to leg press fucking i don't know your body weight or whatever and then you go okay let's see if we can get you into a slightly more quote-unquote unsafe environment and get you doing some you know free weight squats and literally just progress it like you would anyone just make it more challenging progressively overload over time and it's literally as simple as that so i I don't even know how you'd answer this question it it literally is just show them how to do it safely show them somehow or some way in which they can progress and you're done yeah and and i do i I agree but i do think that in this case as well knowledge is power because uh, I think it's easy for like me and you to to tell people that they can just go away and do it and it's fine. But I think knowledge is power in the sense that your parents, your grandparents, they might view you as just being their little kid, you know, as in like, all right, what does this chap know about exercise prescription, you know? So I think there's good to, you can use appeal to authority to your advantage there by saying like, for example, the American College of Sports Medicine, all right, use that name and say, oh, these are guidelines put together by loads of doctors and experts. And what they suggest is that the, that elderly people um, and, and all adults perform strength strengthening exercises two to three times per week because it improves your health you know because it improves your uh, your all-cause mortality i.e not not dying not dying um but uh but yeah so you use all those facts to your advantage you say oh this is what the researchers are saying and then they might be like oh but i don't know like you know i'm i'm 80 now and then you say oh actually did you know there was a trial in 2015 called lift more trial in elderly ladies with osteoporosis and they were able to do high intensity resistance training with no adverse outcomes improve their bone mineral density etc like if you can have those facts at the ready i think that helps okay it doesn't mean that facts change behavior but it does mean that you're providing the necessary reassurance to show them that actually do you know what i've made sure that i that this is safe for you like i assure you this is safe and then what you do is you build self-efficacy you start with something that's really achievable um i was just helping my grand out with this earlier in the week and basically what we did we started off with sit to stands so literally arms across the chest granda can you stand up out of the chair he's like yeah of course i can stand up out of the chair like obviously all right granda let's do that 15 times and then you do 15 times and suddenly that's a set of squats like that's hard for an elderly person okay so that's where you start and then you say all right granda you know actually why don't you try and hold this uh, this little this little dumbbell I got you? And then you're progressing. Then you're applying progressive overload. So you basically have to show people that they're able to do it. Um, 
have some degree of knowledge to show that you've actually thought about this and you're concerned about them. Uh, and then you, you address their concerns with understanding and compassion because it is totally understandable that someone who has never lifted weights is going to be concerned about the safety of it. So what you do then is you say that, oh, actually, I know, you know, I know your back is at you, but we, we know that when people tend to do exercise like this, they tend to actually, their back pain can actually improve and it actually strengthens the back and it strengthens the legs and that that can be helpful for, for, you know, Granda, when you were picking up the dog, all right? So you make it relatable, you make it, you know, meaningful to them and you back it up with the knowledge and you promote self-efficacy and it'll be a, a smoother process then. I think that's that. Next question. Next question is, is there a difference in low carbohydrate versus low fat diet for fat loss? With the caveat that I am a GAA player. What do you think, Paddy? Okay, well, first of all, if we just forget about the last section, <clears throat> in terms of purely fat loss, okay, it's pure fat loss. At the end of the day, there's no real difference. Like, yes, yes, there is in so far as you might personally prefer a certain higher carb or higher fat or whatever, and thus it makes you stick to the diet. Your adherence goes up. Outside of that, in terms of like what well, most people are asking this question, like is there some sort of biological, biochemical, physiological reason that a high fat diet or a high carb diet or a low carb or a low fat diet or whatever is going to give you this metabolic edge? Like I just don't think the research would support that e either way, you know, no. outside of which may become important for the, the GAA side of things. You know, outside of carbohydrates generally seem to offer a better return on investment in terms of exercise, so your ability to exercise. So you might find a higher carb diet, which again, you might think goes against whatever you've been told. Uh, you might find that a higher carb diet is actually better for fat loss from the perspective that you then are able to train harder. You know, you are then able to maybe push a little bit harder on your cardio sessions, you know, your lifting sessions, you're able to keep your numbers up a little bit higher. And thus, if you had a twin or twins or whatever, and one of them did low fat and one of them did low carb, like you may actually see the low fat and thus higher carb uh, individual get better results, assuming adherence is the same, purely because they were able to push a little bit harder in the gym, able to push their cardio a little bit harder. However, even then, I would, I would think it would be relatively meaningless in, in the grand scheme of things from a purely fat loss perspective because, you know, at the end of the day, it would, is it going to make, the, make or break your physique if, you know, you went from benching 100 kilos for eight, say, and you on the high carb diet were able to maintain that whereas your twin brother on the uh, higher fat diet lost a little bit of strength and went down to 95 kilos for eight like i don't think that is going to be a noticeable difference in your physique you know you might find that the, the higher carb got a little bit leaner because again like they're able to push themselves a little bit harder during during the cardio that they're doing um but again, that's, that's depending on what type of cardio you're doing, how you react as an individual, et cetera, et cetera. So at the end of the day, I think it's relatively meaningless. However, if we're talking from the perspective of 
performance on the whole. So you're a gap player. I would 100% be in preference of a higher carb diet. You know, it's going to give you the most return on investment for what you're presumably trying to do, which is lose a little bit of fat while continuing to at least perform at the same level, if not improve. So I think carbohydrates are probably going to give you the best return on investment with that. However, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be excessively low on your fat intake. Like I always think these questions are a bit like kind of miss the forest for the trees because it's like, it's one or the other. You're either low fat or you're, you're high fat. And it's like, okay, well, why can't I just be moderate fat and moderate carbs? Like have, have as much fat as I need. We'll say somewhere in that range of 0.6 to 1 grams per kg you know so again if you're a 100 kilo individual that's somewhere in in the range of 60 to 100 grams of fat and then fill the rest with carbs depending on what your overall calories are like and again i would probably bias like if you start noticing like you your your calories need to go way down and you're still taking in the one gram per kilo of fat and I don't know, we'll just say as an arbitrary number, your carbs, if you wanted to lower your calories any further, your carbs needed to go below, say, 200. You know, maybe I would start pulling calories from the fat side of things, you know. So in my opinion, I would 100% be biasing carbs as they offered a better return on investment for performance. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean you need to just bottom out fat intake from the off, you know. Yep, I totally agree. And there's not really much else to add. The practical take-home point is that your like carbohydrates for sports in general are your friend. And you, outside of very specific cases, I see very little reason for someone to assume that a low-carbohydrate diet is going to be better for any sport. And that includes even the ones that you would consider to be "quote unquote" like lower intensity, like race walking, for example. Like you see, when people, when race walkers are put on a low carbohydrate, high fat diet, it actually impairs their exercise economy. So they're actually not as efficient anymore at doing the training that they need to be able to do. And there's multiple different reasons for that, all of which have been written about on our website. So you can check out there for more information. But anyway, next question is top three supplements? Question mark. Short and sweet. What are your top three supplements, Patrick? First of all. I hate these questions because it's, a, it's an it depends. It's an it depends question, you know. Like top three supplements for fat loss, top three supplements for health, top three supplements for muscle building. Like, what what are we talking about? You know. So obviously, <clears throat> like this this is the thing about people asking questions as well. Like they always just presume that everyone has the same goals as them, and that those goals are obvious. Like obviously, you should know my goals without me having to tell you, which obviously they're not. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of supplements, like my go-to is always your diet needs to be maximized first. So like you're not going to get some edge if, you're, if your diet is not where it needs to be. Same with the training. You know, you're not going to get some edge if you just take some fucking super pump 3000. It's not just going to build muscle if you're training is fucking dog shit like you know um so that there the caveats i'm going to presume again the lifestyle factors are in place your sleep is good you're managing stress 
etc. You know, then you start thinking about supplements. And I'm going to give a very generalist view on this, and then we can talk a little bit about some specifics. So, creatine, I think most people could benefit from some creatine. Does it mean it's an, an essential or that it's number one on my list? No. But if someone was to ask me, like, should I take creatine? I'd be hard pressed to find a reason to say no. Right. Um, next thing then, a multivitamin. Like that doesn't mean that everyone has to be on a multivitamin. That also doesn't mean that a multivitamin allows you to have a shit diet. It also doesn't mean that a multivitamin is going to cure what ails you. You know, I think of a multivitamin as kind of insurance. It's like, yeah, it allows you to get things that you maybe are potentially a little bit low on, right? And even then, like I would rather see you take a smaller or a lower dose of a higher quality multivitamin than take a shit quality multivitamin because oftentimes you'll see like uh, there's different we'll call them impurities in some of those lower quality multivitamins and oftentimes you'll see that the the vitamins and minerals in them are in the wrong form well not the minerals so much but the vitamins are in the wrong form for the body to even absorb so it's like yeah you put it in there but that's it's, it's useless you're just going to piss it out you know so i would I would spend a little bit more on the multivitamin, even if that meant you had to take it, you know, once per week, <laughs> you know? Um, and even then, again, it's like this, it largely becomes irrelevant if you actually have your diet 100% in order. But, you know, it's, it's the modern world. Like, who has their diet 100% in order? It's rare, you know? After that, then, I, I just think like a whey protein or something, like a protein powder, it just, it's, it's handy. And a lot of people find it a struggle to get enough protein into their diet. So again, you, you could just take something like milk, but maybe you're lactose intolerant, you know? Um, so a, a protein powder is fairly handy, fairly convenient, allows you to hit your, your protein targets. So outside of that, I'm like, you could go down the rabbit hole and take anything, right? But for most people, I think that kind of covers all your bases. That gets you performance, health, and we'll call it body composition. You know, they're, they're the three aspects that people are most likely looking for in, in terms of their, their supplements. After that, then you can start thinking about supplements for particular issues and what i mean by that is you know like i said you should have your sorry your diet your stress in order your sleep in order all those other things but perhaps you're not able to get them in order there is something that is a little bit outside of your control like you're struggling to manage your stress you know maybe taking some sort of adaptogen allows you to do that like get ahead of the curve so to speak, you know, take the adaptogen, you know, get ahead of the curve, get better stress, stress management practices in place. Same with sleep. Like maybe you take a, a stack to help you with sleep, improve your ability to stay asleep, improve your ability to get to sleep or whatever. And as a result, then you're able to get better practices in place, set up better sleep habits, whatever the fuck, you know, same with like pre-workouts, 
whether they're neurological, whether they're like stimulatory, whether they're for a pump or whatever. It's like, if I'm going to be taking that, I want to make sure my training is a hundred percent locked down first. And there's a, a valid reason for me to be taking this. Like I see people taking like pump products, you know, to help with the pump. And it's like, you're, you're literally doing like low reps. You're not going to be getting a pump anyway. Like you might get some of a pump, but like, it's largely irrelevant. So again, you have to know what you're taking and why you're taking it. And you should have your training, lifestyle, whatever set up to take advantage of that supplement if it is for performance, you know? So basically, you can take targeted supplements to help you get ahead of the curve. But in my mind, I'm like, you shouldn't be taking, like, uh, you shouldn't need to be taking sleep supplements every night. Like, in my mind, I'm like, why why do you have to do that to get or to do something that we have been doing for millennia you know and same with stress management subs it's like i would rather see you actually get good practices in place for stress management than having to take some sort of supplement for the rest of your life same with inflammation supplements it's like like why do we have inflammation like what what's going wrong here that we need to manage this so much you know especially chronically you know so yeah that's that's my kind of perspective on it i like supplements i like strategic use of supplements that doesn't mean that like the majority of my clients like i would say literally nine out of ten of my clients don't take any supplements like maybe a multivitamin maybe protein powder and again maybe creatine outside of that i'm like very rare instances where I'd be like for the next four to six weeks I want you to take this supplement because we're trying to do x y and z but even then it's like it it depends yeah like the way I look at it like people come to us with their own goals and very often those goals are very achievable with basic changes in training and nutrition and lifestyle so like for me like there's if someone came to me with a fat loss goal, I would have no reason to believe that we need to include any supplements to move towards that goal. Like, as you said, they can be there as an insurance policy and that's fine. But overall, like, I think if you think that your, your progress is being hindered by not taking supplements, like there's definitely like bigger issues uh, at stake. So, so there you go. Um, two more questions and then we're done. But this one, how to set up a power building program for for some context here like power building is generally like used to define a program that incorporates both powerlifting and bodybuilding focal points so basically someone who wants to build strength and hypertrophy with the caveat that that strength is specific to powerlifting related tasks so namely like the one one rep max on a squat and bench and deadlift that is my assumption because like otherwise it, I would just consider it to be a general kind of program because you're going to build strength on a hypertrophy program anyway, or, or a program where you're training in any rep range because you, you get stronger. But in this case, the strength is specific to those lifts and, and that level of intensity. Um, this is actually something I wrote about last year. It's on our website. It's freely available, free article, basically how you can imp- basically turn any program into a quote unquote power power building program because basically all you need to do is take the strength that you're building and make it specific to those lifts. So what you could do literally is take your current program where you're working mainly in the six to fifteen repetition range, let's say, which I, I would consider to be a fairly generalist repetition range, good for hypertrophy, good for strength. 
Um, and then what you do is you just do a single, like a, a one repetition single at, at let's say RPE eight, so like two reps in the tank around that range before you do your, your working sets on your squats, your bench press and your deadlift. Essentially what you're doing there is you're translating any strength that you're building into specifically one rep strength and that could be you know progressing or it could be just maintaining while you're focusing more on hypertrophy so that's the simplest way of actually of going about this but the 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 other thing i would say is that hypertrophy so like the actual muscle building component of this is not specific to any particular rep range and there seems to be benefits to using a variety of rep ranges anyway and like there's there's recent evidence in the last month that shows that there's that different hypertrophy signaling pathways activated by different intensities. So like, you know, that goes back to our earlier discussion where there's, there is definitely a benefit of, of doing what has been tried and tested throughout the ages. Like most bodybuilders will tell you that they, like you should probably do different repetition ranges. And you know, that is confirmed in at the basic level of, of signaling. But, but basically what that means for your hypertrophy programming is that you can include high intensity sets of like one to five and still you know be successful in your muscle building once you're doing it and a number of sets that is adequate for you to gain muscle so so that that'd be the the first point if you have anything else to add to that patty no not really like to be honest it's actually like all you're suggesting is they learn the skill of powerlifting like do a few singles that are sub maximal so that they can literally learn to do singles which is powerlifting um, outside of that there's a number of ways you could actually set up the overall structure of the program if you're like oh that's, I'm like, that's not what I mean because that's what you'll see people going to go they're like no I don't mean like just 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 powerlifting like I want to get better at the, the squat bench deadlift but realistically I just want to be jacked and it's like okay well like so all you're saying is you want to get generally stronger like that that's it yeah. right and I just don't see how like a well-designed strength program should be getting you stronger in the six to 15 rep range, like you said, which then translates to a stronger one RM. Like I'm like, sometimes I think of this, I'm like, do people legitimately think like if my six rep max goes up, do you, do you think their one rep max is going to be below that? No, of course not. So if their six rep max goes up, there's one rep max is going to be higher than that, you know? So they're going to be stronger than their six rep max. So if you go from doing, 60 kilos for six on your bench press to doing 80 kilos for six on your bench press your one rep max has most certainly improved you know so you just need to get stronger full stop and you will get stronger in the repetition range that powerlifting would use however you still do need to utilize or rather learn the skill of expressing that strength for a one rep max because it's different it's 100% different than doing repeated reps. Like doing a max effort single is completely different than doing reps, you know? Um, so you need to obviously build that skill. And again, like Gary said, you can do that a number of ways. You, one way to do it is literally just doing a single, a sub-maximal signal, a single even, uh, before training. You could also be like, no that's not what I mean. I want something different than that. And then there's two ways that I would see that or rather I see most people want. And that is you can do two days of strength work. So you do a, a lower day, which is just your strength, strength rep range. It's all like below fives, maybe six is the maximum. 
right? And you only do compound lifts. So on your on your lower body strength day, you do squats, deadlifts, leg press, RDL, something like that, right? And they're all like heavy, 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 right? And that's it, right? The next day you do your upper body day, and again, it's just a heavy day. You do your bench press, you do your bent over row, you do your overhead press, you do your chin up, and maybe you do some fucking close grip bench or skull crushers and some fucking easy bar bicep curls, right? Heavy again, right? That's your strength. You're just focusing on strength. And then you can do three days, two other days or three days of like hypertrophy focused work. You know, you could do a lower body session and it's just all in the, the kind of, we'll say six to 12 rep range. It's more higher, higher rep stuff. Like you start off the block, you're doing like 12 reps in everything, even in a squat. Maybe you actually just go, fuck it. I'm not even going to do the squat. I'm going to just start off on the leg press or the hack squat or something. And I'm going to do loads of leg extensions and I'm going to do all isolation work. And you're just, you're just getting a load of volume from, again, isolation work. And you're doing your fucking 15 sets of calves on that day, that day too. Um, <laughs> and then you do like a, an upper body day and you do chest and back. You know, it's literally just like, again, all hypertrophy specific stuff. You're doing maybe you're doing the, the the bench press, but maybe you're actually just going onto the fucking chest press machine and just getting a sickening pump. It's all higher rep stuff. And then on the final, the fifth day, maybe you do like shoulders and arms, and it's all again just sickening pump, right? That's one way you can do it because that's when people say they want a power building program. That's actually what they want, you know. Um, yeah. Or or you can do it uh, over four days, and what you can do is the first exercise on each of those days is a strength exercise, you know? So you're doing your five sets of five or fucking three sets of three, right? On those exercises. And again, you could easily just do like squat the first day, bench press the second day, deadlift the third day, and fucking overhead press or incline press the fourth day, right? And you can do it like that. And again, then afterwards, you just move to higher reps. So maybe the first one you literally do fucking Three, three to five sets of five reps, right? Next exercise, you're like, okay, I'm going to do, again, we'll say it's your bench press. You do your bench press. The next set, the next exercise even, you do fucking dips and you're doing like, yeah, we're going higher rep with this. We're kind of the eight to 10 rep range. Fucking that's it. And then the next exercise after that, maybe you do some fucking, I don't know, cable flies or something, you know? And you're like, yeah, I'm just fucking hammering that and it's a 15 rep range so you're literally hitting everything and then maybe you do superset each of those exercises with a back exercise as well in the same rep range so you might do bench press and fucking chest supported row and you might do fucking i don't know chest press and fucking one arm dumbbell row or something i don't know fucking whatever and then you do your your flies with uh I don't know, rear delt flies or something. I don't fucking know. You know, you just set it up, whatever. So you basically just go, cool, I've hit all the, the major muscles and I've gone from strength work. I've gone from the, the very low rep range all the way up to the high rep range. So I've hit every fucking possible motor unit. I've fatigued every single possible muscle fiber. I've hit it from every angle and you're good to go. Like that's another way that you could set it up because those two are generally what people actually want when they talk about power building and basically you can do whatever you want <laughs> you know i think one of the constraints on, on, on people in this case is that 
they feel that their program needs to have a name, like as in like, oh, I do the upper lower split or I do the push pull leg split. Like that's what I do. Um, but when you actually free yourself, like which, which I appreciate is actually kind of hard if you don't have like basic programming knowledge. But like what you can do is like just free yourself and just be like, oh yeah, my program is just a program. Like I don't have specific days that I call anything. Um, I don't have specific days for, for specific repetition ranges. Like you can have sets of one and sets of 20 on the same day and have great outcomes. So like, I think once you actually begin to learn some of the basics of programming, that stuff becomes, you know, quite freeing in a sense. But, but there you go. That was good advice, I think. And finally, should I pull sumo or conventional? What do you think, Eddie? Well, sumo is cheating, so pull conventional. Conventional is cheating, you mean? Conventional is cheating because basically conventional, you don't even use like all that hip range of motion, all that abduction, that external rotation. So conventional is just cheating. So, so what you're saying is conventional <laughs> is, actually, is actually not full range of motion. Oh, no, no, no. God, no. Sumo, you need sumo for that full round, bro. All right. You heard it here first. Sumo for full range of motion. But yeah, no, in all seriousness, like, should you pull sumo or conventional, like, do whatever you want. And then, like, it doesn't really make a difference to any meaningful outcomes that you probably care about. Um, other than, like, if you're a powerlifter, choose the one that feels stronger. If you're a general trainee, uh, choose whichever feels most comfortable with the caveat that you can rotate them over time. And that's absolutely fine. Like, like I do both. I'm generally stronger when it comes to sumo, but I train both because they're a little bit different and I see no reason not to be as strong on as many exercise variations as possible. Why not? Yeah. The generalist. So, that's it. Uh, I think that as well. And again, sumo or conventional, it matters not if you're a powerlifter. The only thing that matters with that is like, which one is stronger for you or rather which one can you progressively overload for long? Right. Um, if you are a generalist, like Gary said, you're just gen pop. You're like, literally pick whatever one will consistently have you deadlifting, you know? Um, like if you find you get hip pain doing sumo, like I just don't see the return on investment spending 20 minutes a day trying to get the last millimeter of range of motion in your hip that will allow you to do it. Like maybe that's good for powerlifting, but for most people, I'm like, I just don't see the return on investment for that when you could just be conventionally deadlifting you know um if you are an athlete of say a field sport athlete like i would probably say stick to conventional purely because i don't know it appears you get a little bit better hip extension maybe that would be better for jumping you know broad jumping and vertically or yeah vertically jumping but that's just kind of my thought process on it like i don't I, again i don't think it's going to be so meaningful that you're like oh well you pull sumo and that's the reason you don't have fucking this high of a vertical jump like i don't see it as being yeah. that meaningful i just see it being slightly more specific to the task that you're going to be engaging in however having said that like realistically resistance training is not specific like it is at its very core gpp general physical preparedness and anyone who tells you that it is spp like specific or sporting physical preparedness is trying to sell you a crock of shit. Yep, it's all just GPP. That's it. it? Like obviously That's there it. is like obviously there is 
sporting spe- specificity. Like, you know, if you're like, oh, well, there's these injuries in my sport and I'm going to do these exercises because these injuries are prevalent. Like, obviously that is sporting specific, but saying like, I have to be in this exact stance because that's the stance I'm going to be in for my sport. I'm like, all right, well, that's irrelevant. Like it's, this is GPP. I just want to get your muscles stronger and potentially bigger. That's it. Like, yep. Like the, 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 the old, like the specificity pendulum can swing way too far when it comes to like sports, like people try and predict all the specific positions and, you know, create exercises that are exactly like that. And I think like by viewing it as GPP, as general physical preparedness, it's actually a much better way of looking at strength and conditioning training in general, because you just want to have comprehensive physical capacity. Like that's what you're trying to build. And ultimately like sport is quite chaotic and you can't predict every position that you're going to be in. So like just be comprehensive in your preparation and that should essentially be your goal. And also, I just don't see if I'm like, if you want to do another specific session, then go out and play your sport specifically for that hour rather than spending it in the gym. Like, that's the, the highest degree of specificity you can get. <laughs> yep. And for more on that sort of discussion, the podcast with Dave Nolan kind of goes through some of that stuff related to GA, because um, I know a lot of listeners are interested in GA. We talk a bit about specificity, about resistance training, etc. So that's it for this podcast. Thank you all for listening and thanks for the questions. Really helpful. Anytime we do put up a Q&A request on Instagram, we'd really appreciate if you send in the questions or you can submit them in the question form in the description box because obviously it's far better if you guys get to lead the podcast rather than us trying to think of things that we think are interesting. So there you go. Just talk absolute fucking waffle. That's what we do. Waffle is right. Anyway, I have nothing else to add. So it's too easy. He said.